We're going to talk about battling depression. Um, First of all, let me say, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. Uh, Medicine is from God. Medicine is a good thing. One of Jesus' disciples was Luke, a physician. And so if you battle depression as a serious mental illness and you have thoughts of suicide, see a counselor, see a psychiatrist. I have a counselor and a psychiatrist. I love going to see my counselor. They don't like seeing me, but I really love going to them. And um, I have a psychiatrist as well. There's nothing wrong with medicine. God used different ways to heal people. God is a God of options. One time Jesus spit on some dirt and wiped it on somebody's face and that person was healed. Another time God told somebody to dip into a nasty river seven times and that person was healed. So there's nothing wrong with different options. God has given men and women wisdom to, um, to make medicine. So please, if you battle depression on a mental level that is causing you to have thoughts of suicide or anything like that on a regular basis, go see a doctor. Today, we're going to talk about battling the spirit of depression. There is a demon out there that loves to cause God's people to get depressed. This demon will constantly bombard your thought life and remind you of everything that's not going your way. The demon will tell you all the things that you've lost in life rather than, of course, the things that you have gained. The demon will tell you everything that, um, that should give you reasons to not hope anymore, to not get up out of bed to not go do things for somebody else. This demon will cause you to stay focused on yourself and that will always keep you depressed. Uh, We have to learn how to control our thought life. This series is very, very important because your life follows your thoughts. If you think about it, the only ground the enemy has in our life is with our thoughts. You say, no, no, he could cause bad circumstances to happen. Well, let me tell you, bad circumstances can come from the devil. They can come from our own poor choices. They can come from um, the, the evil of mankind itself and someone doing, making wrong decisions that affect you. So negative circumstances come no matter what. There's no way we can get out of that regardless of whose fault the negative circumstances are. But when those negative circumstances happen, what goes on in our mind determines what our future is going to be like. Because um, the, the, the bad things can come, but you don't have to be afraid unless you choose to think thoughts of fear. You don't have to be angry with somebody or bitter unless you choose to think thoughts of how they did you wrong. So really the main ground we face in life is in our mind. And if we can get our mind under the right um, thought life, under the right control, then our life will be so much better. We need to focus more on what we're thinking about on a daily basis than what we're doing. Because even our emotions come from our thoughts. You cannot feel fear without having thoughts of fear. You can't um, uh, feel um, jealousy or criticalness towards somebody without judging them in your mind first. You can't feel depressed without having thoughts of depression. And the interesting thing is our actions follow our emotions. Is everybody with me so far? So you have thoughts. Your thoughts think something. Then you feel what it is you're thinking about. Then as human beings, we act based on how we feel. Uh, What you're going to do the rest of today when you leave church is based on your thought life. Uh, You start thinking about, you know, K&W or KFC or what other K's there are out there, whatever, and you start getting hungry, and you think, well, I'm hungry, and you start feeling hungry, then you start acting towards what it is you've been thinking about and feeling. It goes all through that pattern of life. It all goes back to our thoughts. If we can control our thoughts, we can control our entire life. There are three things, if you're taking notes, that this demon of depression is after in your life. Here's the first thing. The demon wants you to base your happiness on your circumstances. The demon wants to deceive us into basing our happiness and our joy on our circumstances because if our circumstances are up, we'll be happy, and if they're down, that means we're going to be depressed. The problem with this is nothing is always up all of the time. 
So if you base your happiness on what's going on around you, then one day, I promise you, you will be depressed and have no joy. The second thing this demon wants to do, he wants us to rely on people for our happiness. The demon wants you to take the responsibility of your joy and put it on your spouse. And if your spouse does everything just right and performs perfectly, then you're happy, which we know never happens. So if they don't perform perfectly, then you're depressed. The demon wants you to rely on your parents. If they give you everything you want and if they buy you what you want and if they provide everything that you think you need in life, then you're happy. And if your parents don't measure up to whatever standard you think they should measure up to, then you're depressed because you're not getting your way. The demon wants you to rely on your children because a lot of times when we get in our old age we want our children to make us happy and come visit us and talk to us and if they don't perform just right we're going to be depressed that's a trick of the enemy number three the second the third thing the demon wants to do is he wants us to be too weary to come to church and praise and worship god he wants you to be too weary to lift your hands and to clap your hands and to sing. He wants you to be too prideful because you're worried about what someone's thinking next to you. Here's why he doesn't want that. Because the source of your joy is God and nothing else. So if you are too weary to gain strength from the source of your joy, you're not going to have the joy you need for the rest of the week to withstand his attacks. Everybody with me so far? Good. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, be happy in your faith and glad-hearted always. God will not tell us to do something without giving us the empowerment to do it. All through the Bible, when it talks about tithing, he's not going to say, bring the first 10% of your income, but I'm not going to let you have a job. I'm not going to let you have any income. I'm not going to give you any kind of strength to work. No, God gives us what we need to obey his word. And if it says that we are to be happy in our faith and glad-hearted always, there's a way for that to happen. This means be happy in your faith when the sun's shining and be happy in your faith when it's raining outside. It means be glad-hearted always when you're on the mountaintop and everything's going great and be glad-hearted always when you're down in the valley and the whole bottom has dropped out. The point I'm making is this. Maturity is controlling your thoughts and not letting your thoughts control you. Don't think maturity has to do with age because I know young people that are more mature than older people and vice versa has nothing to don't think well my parents are more mature than me or my grandparents are more mature than me. True maturity is controlling your thoughts and not letting those thoughts control you. When you see somebody and they're your age or older or younger and you think man they're so immature what they're doing is they're allowing their thought life to just go run rampant and whatever they think is how they're going to feel. If they think sad they're going to feel sad. If they think anger they're going to feel bitterness. If they think fear, they're going to act on that. We think, oh, they're just running with their emotions. They're not controlling their mind. I read a true story about this 92-year-old man. He had been married for almost 70 years, and he was moving into a senior citizen's home. He was waiting in the lobby to be taken to his room, and he was very well-dressed, very sharp, modern dressed for his age, and his hair was combed to perfection. His face was perfectly shaven. And as he was sitting there, he waited for almost an hour, and finally the nurse or receptionist came to guide him, and she said, I'm going to take you and show you your new room. As he maneuvered his walker through the hallway, she began to describe his room to him. She said, oh, you're going to love it. There's a big window where you can see outside. There's a desk over in the corner. There's a, a couch if you have any visitors. And he interrupted her and said, let me tell you, I love it, I love it, I love it. She smiled and said, sir, you hadn't even seen your room yet. We'll be there in just a few minutes. You'll get to see your room. And he said, no, 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 no. Happiness is not determined on how the furniture in my room is arranged. My happiness is determined by how my mind is arranged. I choose to be happy ahead of time. 
Here's what he was saying. I can't control all my circumstances, but I can control my thoughts. Your circumstances may change your plans, but your circumstances do not have to change your thoughts. You can choose to think the right thoughts anytime you want to. Abraham Lincoln said, most people are as happy as they have decided to be. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, arise from the depression in which the circumstances have kept you. Rise to a new life. I love this scripture because I love it when God validates me. He is validating my emotions and he's saying, John Paul, I understand that circumstances can bring depression. I understand that when things don't go your way, you can get sad. I understand whenever you're battling finances or you're battling health or you feel like you know, have no friends or whatever, I understand that circumstances can cause depression. But I'm also telling you this, God says, your circumstances don't have to keep you depressed. See, a lot of us were waiting on God. God, please pull me out. Please get me out and change these things in my life so I can be happy and enjoy my life again. But God is waiting on us. It says if we will arise in the midst of those circumstances, then he will bring us the new. If you study this word arise very carefully in the original language, it really means to get up and do something for the kingdom of God. In other words, take somebody else some food just like people have brought you food. Go next door and mow your neighbor's lawn. Call somebody and tell them how glad you are that they're in your life. Write somebody a letter. Send them an email. Do something productive that gets you out of bed and focuses your attention not on you, but on something much, much bigger and better than you. If we will arise, then God will bring us the new. We will never change what we tolerate in life. If you allow this demon of depression to constantly bombard you when your circumstances are down or when you're not getting your way, it will never change. And the older you get, you'll still be depressed, nothing. It, you have to make the decision, I'm not going to tolerate this demon in my life anymore. If I have to fight every single day to just get up and arise and do something for somebody else, then for the rest of my life, every single day, I'm going to arise and do something for somebody else. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how much power of mine it takes. I don't care how much willpower. I'm going to get up and arise because when I do that, God has promised me he'll bring me something new in life. He'll change the circumstances. Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 3.17, even though the fig trees have no fruit, even though the grapes don't grow on my vines, the olive crop fails, the fields produce no grain, the sheep all die, the cattle stalls are empty, yet will I still rejoice and be glad because God saves me. One translation says this, I will be happy and turn cartwheels of joy. Now, if some of y'all turn cartwheels, we'd have to call the ambulance. So that's not for everybody. That's just for some of the younger people here. But anyway, here's what Habakkuk was saying. If Habakkuk was from Aner, he would be saying this. Even if my hunting buddies go hunting without me, even if gas prices go to $4 a gallon, even if my Z71 won't start, my dog is mad at me and runs away, and my wife just lost her second front tooth, yet will I still rejoice and be glad in God. Yet will I still go to church, I will still give, I will still serve, I will still smile, not because I feel like it, but because I want to feel like it. And if I can get my mind going in the right direction, then my feelings are going to follow that. If you really study what the enemy is after in life, he's not necessarily after our marriage, though that is high on his list. 
He's not necessarily after our finances, though that is high on his list. Our health, he wants to attack you in your physical health, yes. But the number one thing, because the Bible says we are to know the schemes of the enemy. In other words, we should know, he studies us, he's studied you from generation, to, he has studied your past generations and knows just what to do to try to get you to stumble, fall, and step out of God's path for your life. The number one thing he is after in your life above everything else, his first attack in your life is your joy. That's the first thing he's after. Because the enemy knows the scripture, Nehemiah 8.10, do not be sad or depressed. The joy of the Lord is where you get your strength from. The devil knows if he can steal your joy, then he can go after your marriage and you won't have strength to fight against him. If he can steal your joy, then he can go after your finances because you won't have the fight to stand up to him and stand in faith. If he can come after your joy, your strength is gone and you're just laying there, just waiting for him to trample all over you. He's after our joy. That's the first thing he's after. George Burns said, happiness is having a loving, caring, close-knit family that lives in another state. Um, <laughs> that's true. Preach it, Pastor. That's the best point you made today. Anybody write this out in my Bible somewhere? Where is that Genesis? Some. Okay, so happiness is really all about perspective. Uh, this job that you have that causes you depression and you get upset driving there, if you lost that job, and you went three or four months and couldn't find a job, and you're about to lose your house, you're about to lose your car, you're about to lose things that you're paying. And for some reason, your boss called you up and said, listen, I want you to come back to work. Same position, same amount of money. Do you know how happy you would be then? Those of you in here that are healthy, but you're still depressed. If for some reason, you were sick, and you were in the hospital and you're on your deathbed and you're about to die and then all of a sudden God healed you and you were healthy enough to come to church. Do you know how happy you would be to be in this place right now? I'm telling you, I am not a good sick person. If you really want to see like the worst person in the world see me sick, if I have the flu or the stomach bug, I am literally crying, laying on the bathroom floor. God, please, I'll be a missionary in Africa. I'll take a vow of celibacy. I'll be a priest. I'll do it. Okay, I won't do that far. But I will go to Africa, God. I'll do whatever it takes. Just heal me. Whenever you're sick and then you're healed, do you know how happy you are just to be able to get out of the house and look at the sun and walk on the beach? The point is this. We have everything we need to already be happy. Right now. We already have everything. God's already blessed us. So don't think if I just had this, if I just had their life, if I just had their money, if I just had their health, if I just had their, if I, then I would be happy. We have everything we need right now to be happy. Everything we need right now. The problem is, is that we're focused on what we want and we're taking for granted what we already have. Um, I heard about this little boy who was out in his front yard, you know, playing around, and there was a bully that lived down the street, and this bully would always pick on him, and he didn't have the, the bravery to stand up to this bully quite yet. He was playing with a telescope, and he was looking through the wrong end of the telescope. He was looking through the big end, and his father went outside and said, son, you're, you're doing it wrong. You're looking at the telescope the wrong way. Turn it around, and you'll be able to see things bigger than they really are, just like you're supposed to. Uh, this little boy said, Dad, I know that, but right now I'm looking at that bully. And when I see him through the telescope this way, he's much, much smaller and I'm not afraid of him anymore. 
a lot of y'all, you need to turn your telescope around because you're looking at things the wrong way. You're focused on your problems. You're magnifying the wrong things in life. Psalms 34.3 says, magnify the Lord and let us exalt his name together. When you magnify something with a telescope, you're not changing the size of the object. You're changing your perception of the size of the object. Some of y'all, I would be depressed if I focused on what you focus on by some of the things you, you write on Facebook or you talk to your friends about. And you're so, Man, I would be so depressed if I were you because you're focusing on the wrong things. Those things that you're magnifying, they're not even getting any bigger, but in your mind, they're getting bigger because you're focusing on them. You're talking about them. You're, 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 you're thinking about all the ways you're going to be able to come up with this answer and open this door and is it ever going to happen for you? And man, I would be depressed as well. But when you magnify the Lord, you're not changing the size of the Lord. He is all powerful, all big, no matter what you do, whether you look at him, not magnify him or not. But when you choose to magnify him, you're actually making God bigger in your own mind. And the more you magnify God and the bigger he gets in your life, the smaller your problems get down the road. Man, this is such a good sermon and y'all don't even know it. Okay. This is like, this is like my favorite sermon of the series. I'm, I really, this helped me a lot. <laughs> okay, so this is a great story. Genesis chapter 29. Jacob was this um, young, handsome guy looking to find a wife, and he meets these two sisters named Rachel and Leah. Everybody say Rachel and Leah. Okay, so Rachel um, is who he fell in love with. Immediately when Jacob sees Rachel, he is madly in love, falls head over heels for her. He wants to marry her so bad. And in Genesis 29, 17, the first part of that scripture says this, Rachel was stunningly beautiful and voluptuous in form. Now, when the Bible says, <laughs> this is not a sermon on lust. We already dealt with lust several weeks ago. And no, all you guys are like, does my Bible have those pictures like they did when I was little? Those pictures in there. If the Bible says you are beautiful and voluptuous in form, let me tell you, you are hot to trot. Like this is like Miss Universe times 10. And Jacob fell in love with her immediately. Genesis 29, 17, the next part of the verse says, but her sister Leah had weak eyes and was dull looking. Now, I don't know what weak eyes means, but I know what dull looking means. Mark's my best friend. And so immediately, everybody realized, <laughs> I'm not going to look that way though for the next three minutes. But anyway, and so imagine how happy Rachel was to have the looks, and I assume Leah got the smarts in the family, but every guy would turn their head when Rachel would walk by. She was so happy in life, being as beautiful as she was, given that gift, but there was Leah. I'm sure Leah was always being compared to her sister, and I'm sure depression was easy for her to battle in life. It says in verse 20 that Jacob loved Rachel and served her dad Laban for seven years to marry her, but it seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. That's so sick. Anyway, and so he, <coughs> stupid, whatever, idiot, <laughs> idiot. I want my girlfriend to work for me for seven years. But anyway, okay, so I'm not going to have a girlfriend when uh, today's over with. Okay, so um, now I'm shaking. But anyway, and so, so he wanted to marry her and Laban said, okay, seven years. So Jacob worked for seven years. Okay, seven years he's working while just able to look at this woman that he loves. And then it came time for the wedding. Now on the wedding night, Laban, the dad, was such an evil crook. He sent Rachel far away and he dressed up his daughter Leah 
in the wedding dress. And back then they had a veil that was so thick you couldn't see through it intentionally until they, you know, um, went off by themselves in the tent and da-da-da. And so the, the, the veil was thick and Jacob got insane drunk. If you read the Bible, he got drunk as a skunk and he married Leah. And the next morning, the sun comes up, and there was weak eyes staring right back at him in the tent. <laughs> anyway, here's the point. So now, so now, now Leah's happy as can be because she's married Jacob, and now Rachel's depressed because she has no husband. So Jacob goes to the dad and says, you dirty, rotten crook, how could you do this to me? You made me marry Leah. And in verse 27, he says, it is not the tradition to give the younger before the older. I will give you Rachel if you will work for me another seven years. And so he agreed, and now he marries Rachel, and now Rachel's happy again, and now Leah is depressed again. It says in Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he made her able to have children, but Rachel was barren. And now Leah's happy again, and now Rachel's depressed, because back then one of the greatest things you could do for your spouse, your husband, was to have babies. And she had one boy after them. Just baby, that's, that's how you have babies, because I've had, it's easy. One baby, two baby, three baby. So she had six babies, six boys, and she had girls. And now she's so happy. <laughs> and now Rachel's all upset. Rachel has no babies. Okay, here's what I want to tell you. I'm sure that whenever Leah was at Walmart with two buggies and six, seven, eight kids, I'm sure everybody saw Leah and thought, wow. This woman is blessed. I'm sure she's the happiest thing in the world. Look at all those beautiful children she had for her husband. Oh, I wish I could have Leah's life. But what they didn't see was the deep, dark depression that she battled on the inside. If you listen close, you can hear Leah crying out to God in the middle of the night saying, God, I just want my husband to love me the way my sister's husband loves her. God, it's not fair. Why did you make me like this? Why don't I look like her? How come every guy stares at her? But God, I feel all alone in this. Why did you make me like this? God, why couldn't I be more like this person over here? I'm so depressed, God. Can't you change this for me? And then there was Rachel. And when Rachel was walking through the mall and she was trying outfits on, man, everybody, even the girls would think, gosh, she must be stuck up and prideful. She's so pretty. Look at her body. She's voluptuous in form, stunningly beautiful. And her husband worked for her for 14 years. Surely she is the happiest woman in the world. But what they didn't know was the depression that she battled. What they didn't hear was in the middle of the night, Rachel would cry out to God and say, God, I just want a child. That's all I asked for. My sister, she has six, seven, eight children. All I want is a baby. I've been praying for years, God. Why did you make me barren? Why can't I have what my sister has in life? The point of the story is if we allow our secret frustrations to steal our joy, we will end up enduring life rather than enjoying life. 
I don't know why you're in the circumstance you're in. I don't know why you look like you do. You have what you have. I don't know why things, doors did open and then other doors didn't open. I don't know. And people may not know about your secret frustrations. Nobody made it. They may see you in Walmart or at the mall and you're smiling and nobody knows the depression that you go through. Nobody hears you crying in the middle of the night. Nobody knows how bad it is for you in your mind and the thoughts bombard you on a daily basis and you think, God, why? But if you put up with this demon, it's going to steal the strength you need to get through every single day that God has called you to enjoy and live. And you'll just end up enduring each day. I read where America represents 6% of the world's population, but we take 90% of the world's antidepressants. Man, that means something's wrong because we are a blessed people in here. Trouble is inevitable, but misery is optional. Trouble is going to come. I know you came to church. I know you gave, but trouble's going to come. I'm sorry. It's going to come. It rains on the just and the unjust. But how you respond to that trouble, whether you choose to be miserable or not, is completely and totally not up to your spouse, not up to your parents, but it's up to you. So here's the last question on today's sermon. Last question, five minutes left, and we're going to go into communion. How can I be happy and stay happy? Isn't this the cry of humanity? Isn't this what mankind has been searching for since the very beginning? All we want, in fact, the decisions you make, the decisions you make on food, on where you live, on who you hang out with, on what you watch on TV, it's all about how can you be happy and stay happy. That's really what we want. Let me rephrase this question, and I'm going to give you the answer to it. The, the rephrasing question is this. How can we defeat the spirit of depression? That's really the question. How can we defeat the spirit of depression. I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to read just a few scriptures, even though there's thousands of scriptures to back up my answer. I'm going to tell you, but if you choose not to do it, don't come to me crying, saying I'm depressed, when I've given you the answer to defeat this enemy in your life, okay? The answer is, you worship God like your oxygen depends on it. That's the answer. You worship God like your oxygen depends, like you're going to suffocate and die if you do not get your hands in the air, if you do not express verbally the power of God and how much you love him. Now, let me give you some scriptures. Galatians 5.22, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So we have joy. When you got saved, a seed of joy was put inside of you. But if you disconnect yourself from the body of Christ and you disconnect yourself from the source of that joy, from the body, from the body of Christ is the church, if you disconnect yourself from that and you do not um, stay connected to the vine, then that joy is not going to be produced in your life. Remember the scripture, how he's the vine and we're the branches. You have to stay connected to the vine. That is the source of your joy. And when you disconnect yourself, you don't have the source of your joy. So you're going to look for it elsewhere in other places. Psalm 1611, in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. The Bible says when two or more agree and, or two or more come together to worship in his name, there he is in the midst of it. So the presence of the, the, the God's presence in here today is the fullness of joy. Isaiah 61 3, he has sent them the garment of praise for the spirit of depression and all of joy for mourning. There's a garment and it just doesn't fall on you naturally. You have to come to church and you put it on, you praise God out of your mouth. You don't need to know the song, you don't need to know exactly the tune of it, but when you verbalize the power of God and when you're willing to lift your hands without, the Bible talks about lifting your hands and not caring what anybody else thinks and you're willing to praise and worship God, this garment gets put on you, this garment of praise and the spirit of depression cannot live under that garment. Once that garment is put on you by praising God, the spirit of depression 
ceases and desists and leaves. It cannot live there. It says the oil of joy for mourning. Think about this. Jesus is your jiffy lube. Don't go to him when you have an oil leak. You do it every single week. You change the oil in your car on a regular basis whether you think it needs it or not. Just the same way you come to church and you worship God because you need to stay connected to your source. Jeremiah 33, 11, They shall be happy. Everybody say happy. As they sing sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, where? In the house of the Lord. That word sacrifice means you don't feel like it all the time. The word sacrifice means you may wonder what people are thinking about you when you're doing it. The word sacrifice may say you don't like the song we're singing, but you do it anyway because it's a sacrifice of praise in the house of the Lord. And here's the result. Then God says, I will reverse the captivity and restore the prosperity that was lost. In other words, I'll change the circumstances. Here's what God's saying. Um, I reverse and restore, not when you come here negative, not when you come here complaining, but when you come here and you sing happy songs. It is impossible to praise God and be depressed at the same time. It's impossible. Um, Chase, uh, the Clarks aren't here today because uh, one of them's real sick, the other one's out of town. But Chase has a daughter, L- Lily. She's like two or three years old. You'll see her around church and um, big blue eyes. And she loves to praise God. I mean, she loves to dance and sing. She doesn't care how loud the song is, whether we're singing it right or not. She just loves to praise God. I've never heard Lily, um, you know, walking around with like unforgiveness in her heart towards another baby. I've never um, seen Lily with a chip on her shoulder. I've never seen Lily thinking, I wonder what those other babies are going to think of me when I start lifting my hand and praising God. I've never um, um, seen Lily um, saying, you know, I'm worried about ISIS and the wars and the gas prices, and I don't know what's going to happen to my family. I've never seen Lily say, I can't praise God today because I'm thinking about retirement and how I'm going to be able to retire. Lily just worships God freely. Here's one reason. She has a daddy that will take care of her no matter what. She has a granddaddy that'll kick anybody's butt that tries to mess with her. So in the same way, we need to have that same confidence in our God that God, I care about you more than I care about anything else in this world. And so when that spirit of depression falls on me, I'm gonna do all I can to get in your presence and praise and worship you because I know that spirit of depression cannot live and survive where the garment of praise is at. Psalms 118.24, today is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, Surveys show that Americans are happier on Saturday than any other day of the week. But it doesn't say Saturday is the day the Lord has made and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. It says today. That means if you woke up, you have the ability to rejoice in the Lord. If you woke up today, you're better than most people in the world right now. Last scripture and we're done. So, Mankind has searched for happiness. And since the beginning, people have tried the same thing you and I try to get, to be happy. We've all tried the same thing. Um, that's all anybody, in fact, when you meet, even people that have drug addictions or alcohol or whatever, it was all about trying to be happy. So when we look down on somebody else because they battle something we don't battle, let me tell you, everyone has tried to be happy in some way, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's um, relationships, whether it's money, whether it's whatever. And the wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus, was named Solomon. Not only was the wisest man who ever lived, he was the the richest man who ever lived, the Bible says. And Solomon spent his life trying to find the goal of, trying to find the, the way to be happy and stay happy. First, Solomon tried women. And he had over 900 wives. And I know this, it must have been before he was wise, but anyway. Um, and so, so, and he wasn't happy. He tried and tried for years and years thinking relationships could make him happy. Didn't work. 
Then he tried money, became the richest man in the world. I mean, he had money, money galore. I mean, everything was gold, jewels, and he still wasn't happy. Then the last thing he tried was popularity and prestige. And he was so wise that even the queen of Sheba, she came from around the world. People would come and give him money just to hear him talk. All they wanted to do was just hear him speak because he was so wise. And the most popular man, and he still wasn't happy. And at the end of his life, he finally discovered what happiness is and how to obtain it. And he told us how to do that. When I read this scripture, I don't want you to wait until you get to the end of your life to finally discover what it means to be happy, okay? So let's learn from Solomon on his deathbed. Ecclesiastes 12, 3. After all this, in other words, after trying my whole life to be happy, there's only one thing to say. Worship God, for this is the purpose of man and the foundation of all happiness. You might not like the answer, but that's the answer.